And you say, where is Levi? That's the question. That's what we all want to know. Where is he and why does he desert? I've had to conclude two series for him now. Okay? He doesn't, he doesn't want to conclude things. So, anyway, no. I appreciate the work he has done. Having worked this week on this lesson, I appreciate the work he has done. It's one thing to stand up and do an exposition of Scripture. It's another thing to take a book someone else has written that is not the infallible Word of God, but is an excellent Word, okay, and then try to explain somebody else. You know, it's hard enough to explain God. It's really hard to explain people. <laughs> and, uh, but he's done a great job in this series. I wish he could be here to conclude it because he would do a far better job than I would. But... Uh, Anyway, a couple of things before we pray. He's talked about this book. I also highly commend this. Uh, I got this book when he recommended it, and it is worth the price. Also, here's one he has not mentioned, which I have used. Uh, It goes through the entire institutes. It's a theological guide to Calvin's institutes. It is um, edited by David Hall and Peter Lilbach. And it is an excellent book to take you through the Institutes and the section here that we're going through. I will quote from this this book a few times today. If I can get through the whole lesson, I hope I can. So let me stop talking about all these things. Thank you for being here. And uh, he has read some prayers of John Calvin. I found in my library recently this little book that was put together... um, 1954, Uh, it's on uh, prayers and challenges from the Minor Prophets by John Calvin. And I told Levi last week I found this, and he has been lustful ever since. But that's something he shouldn't do, because we'll talk about that today. Uh, But let's, let's bow for prayer, and here's Calvin's prayer. It's a good one. Don't just hear the words. You pray along with him. Grant, Almighty God, that as we are now surrounded on every side by so many miseries, and as the condition in such that the mist, uh, that a mist groans and continual sorrows our life could be hardly sustained unless Thou dost support us by spiritual grace. O grant that we may learn to look upon the face of Thine anointed and seek comfort from him in our misfortunes, and such a comfort as may not engross our minds or at least retain us in the world, but raise our thoughts to heaven and daily seal to our hearts the testimony of our adoption, and that though many evils must be borne by us in this world, we may yet continue to pursue our course And to fight and strive with invincible perseverance until having at length finished all our struggles, we reach that blessed rest which has been obtained for us by the blood of thine only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Great prayer. And I took that because we've been talking about last week, talking about suffering and but keeping our eyes upon heaven. And this week we move back down to earth with some very practical words, I think, for us 
on this day. Now, as we, as we get into this, this is week six, and on week six, as you can see, it's how the present life and its comfort should be used. Because last week, I, I was sitting here, and I think there was a little bit of an uproar about, uh, why did Calvin say that? And boy, that's kind of stern. Um, I've heard that before after some of my sermons when I was a pastor for more than 40 years. And you just like to say, hear the end of the story. Read the final chapter. Listen to the next sermon. Balance will come. This is what Calvin's going to do. But um, we, we saw, uh, we've had five chapters here in this particular book that we have been using. And today, I'm going to encourage you, if you have this book with you, open it up and follow along when I ask you to look in some places. Scripture is called a Christian living. That was chapter one. Chapter two, self-denial in the Christian life. Chapter three, burying our cross is part of self-denial. Meditation on the future life there in chapter four, which we dealt with last week. And now how to present life and its comforts should be used, how the present life. So. Uh, here's a, a synopsis, my synopsis, a quick synopsis of how these chapters flowed. Levi has given you an excellent outline of each of these chapters. I'm not going back over his notes. I'm simply going back and looking at the scriptures Calvin put down and what Calvin was basing his principles on. So scriptures called a Christian living is we need to love righteousness, 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. I would encourage you to write those verses down for you to go back and check, but they're in the book. And number two, we need to model, we need a model to keep us from losing our way in our pursuit of righteousness, Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. And that model is my ears aren't working. That model is Who's the, who is the model for us in righteousness? Oh, man. Get more coffee, please. You're not awake. Chapter 2, self-denial in Christian life. And he appeals to us about self-denial on basically present your bodies as living sacrifices, Romans 12. Deny yourself, Matthew 16, 24. Renounce ungodliness, Titus 2. 11 to 14, a critical passage for him because he comes back to that passage a couple or three times in this entire section. And consider others more significant than yourselves, Philippians 2. And again, who is our example? All right, two of you have wakened up now. All right, take another sip. Chapter 3, bearing the cross is part of self-denial. And we're called to endure suffering Bearing the cross is enduring suffering. There's some passages. Rejoicing in persecution. And know that God is at work in you. Nothing happens in your life except God is there and He's using it for His glory and for your good. Then, number four. Chapter four, Meditation on the Future. Life is brief, James 4.14 He talked about the brevity of life and how we so attach ourselves to this life and we forget how brief life really is. I mean, I'm 72 years old. Life has gone like that. It is so quickly passing by. Life is hard. 
Yeah, there are troubles, turmoils, Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Life is enchanting, though. It draws us in. He did not have a particular verse on that, and I didn't have time to go find one for you. But I think Ecclesiastes would be a very good place to go if you wanted to find that, how, how enticing life can be and enchanting it can be. And life is waiting in hope. Here's Titus 2, 11 to 14 again. Uh, Calvin really likes this passage. In fact, that's one of the, the, the sections right now that I've been considering to, to preach on when I'm, I'm preaching in a few weeks over at Churchill. And in chapter 5, now we come to today. So in the final two chapters, chapters 4 and 5 in our books, chapters 9 and 10 in the Institutes in book 3, Uh, suffering and the Christian life comes into focus. And Calvin shows the balance between a wrong and a right kind of attachment to this world. We should be attached, and we are attached to the world. But there's a wrong way, and there's a right way. If one does not read the entire section, I'm quoting here from uh, William Edgar, if one does not read the entire section, then one could get the impression that Calvin is preaching detachments. Totally detach yourself from the world. Isolate yourself from the world totally. But no, we're to be engaged in the world. Again, it's like listening to part of a sermon. Maybe even where, where our pastor is going right now, and you, you're listening to part of the sermon and say, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Or That sounds pretty harsh. But just keep listening. Because what we need from the pulpit is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. That's what, what we need to be preaching. So as we move here, if you look up on the screen, as we move from chapter 4 to chapter 5 in our book, William Edgar writes, Calvin extends his discussion of the balance between the denial and the enjoyment of the things of this life. But here in today's chapter we're about to get into, the emphasis is clearly on the enjoyment of life. And that's, again, from this particular book that I'm quoting from when I'm Quoting Edgar. David Calhoun quotes C.S. Lewis with this. The apostles themselves left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And then here comes the famous words of Lewis. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Lewis there in his Mere Christianity, that quote, was telling us it's a matter of priorities and perspective. And you are in the world, yes, but we're not of the world. And so our focus and our priorities need to be different. You see, earth becomes heaven to most people who are earthlings, non-Christians. This is heaven. This is all they got. This is all they're living for. So go for the gusto. Grab all you can get. And sadly, many Christians live like that, or professing Christians live like that. Calvin says, I'm not sure a person is a Christian who who lives that way. So we would never uh, profess that in life that I'm really, uh, I want everything I can get out of this life because this is what I'm living for. None of us would say that. But when you look at our lives practically, that's the way some of us, and myself included at times, live. So, 
Section 1. Now, in your book, I'm sure you've noticed this by now, and Levi's pointed it out. You know, you have paragraphs, but then you have a little diamond at the end of certain sections. These are the sections in here. So I'm going to provide, for instance, if you notice, the first quote I'm going to use comes on page 111 of your book that you would have in paragraph 1. So that's what I'm alluding to, and you'll see the, the notations there that, that may help you. So the first section begins, and always look at his first line. His first line is his premise. His first line is what he's going after, basically. We shouldn't avoid those things which seem to serve our pleasure more than our necessity. This is Calvin now, who last week said, hey, you know, just be very careful here. You can't do this, you can't do this. And then he says this, instead, we should hold to some rule so that we can use the things of this world, whether they serve necessity or delight, here's the key, with a pure conscience. Calvin is saying that it is an unhealthy extreme to abstain uh, from things that bring delight, pleasure, and joy personally, if any of these things can be done without corrupting our morals or our conscience. It's okay to enjoy things in this life. Uh, the verse here. As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, because that's the first thing that comes when we are just indulging ourselves. We become proud nor to set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches. Look, look at the words that Paul is using here under inspiration. Where are, you, where are you setting your hopes in life? They're uncertain. Riches are uncertain. Have you looked at your investments if you have any lately? It's very uncertain right now in the market, isn't it? Open up your gas cap and say hello and see how many echoes you get back because gas costs so much. A lot of things are uncertain right now. So, those who are rich, though, charge them not to be haughty, set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with what? A few things? Some things? Only spiritual things? You are not talking to me today. Everything, everything to enjoy. Calvin goes on to talk about that as we journey on our pilgrimage, page 111, paragraph 2, we are eagerly tra traveling toward our heavenly kingdom. And so God, though, in this journey gives us uh, moments to enjoy, multitudes of moments to enjoy for which we are to be thankful. Uh, this week alone, an opportunity came up for us. Somebody called me up and says, hey, I've got an extra ticket to go to a choir concert, would you like to go? And I'm thinking, do I want to go after working all day outside doing work? Do I want to go to a choir concert? But is this a good friend? I hadn't seen a friend in a while. I said, you know, my wife really likes choirs. How about you taking her? <laughs> I tried to pass her off. So, but but. He said, well, I was looking forward to spending some time with you. I said, okay, I'll just plan on it. I'll go with you. In the meantime, I had her checked for tickets, and she found a ticket, and it was general admission. We got there, and we were actually, he had gotten there early, and he had seats saved for us in the second row center. And we were sitting right down there. 
And the choir was St. Olaf's Choir. All right, some of you are shaking your heads. You know, during Christmas season and other seasons, this is a world-renowned choir. So I'm thinking, well, this is going to be good. And I saw man, a multitude of people come in, and, and the place was packed. And so here we are sitting there on that second row, and the choir opens its mouth to sing. And I thought I was tasting of heaven. One of the greatest choral concerts I've ever attended, and I have been to many, many, many choral concerts. I married into that. So, it was astounding, but God gave us this pleasure to enjoy. God wants us to drink of simple pleasures and make use, as Calvin says in page 111, paragraph 2, of the land's goods to aid us, for they are not there to hinder us. God has not put anything in here in this life to hinder us. There are things that can hinder us if we let it. But he gave us all things to enjoy. And he makes reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I have to keep watching myself uh, to be sure I'm on path with this because I haven't coordinated the two. I've been working every day this week on this, but I hadn't had trouble to do that. So... Um, this, listen here to 1 Corinthians 7. You've got a Bible turn there. You want to see this. He says, uh, and it's, this chapter is about marriage and divorce and widows and, and all sorts of things that are going on. Uh, sexual problems. And um, he comes down to verse 29. And he says, this is what I mean, brothers. So now he's going to get down to the gist of this. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, that's the first thing he says. When he comes to the end of what I'm going to read, he's going to add this line, and you can see they serve as bookends. The time, he says, the appointed time has grown very short. At the end, he says, for the present form of the world is passing away. So now we know what's driving him here is, all right, time's short. We're living in the last days. The Lord is coming soon. The world's passing away. So what are you living for? What are you living for? So he says this, from now on. So it's, it's literally in the Greek, it's, it's now for, for the rest, for the remaining time that you've got. Whatever time we have, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as those who had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present, uh, of the, the present form of this world is passing away. Now, I, I read through that list of five illustrations. He talks about marriage and he talks about mourning and rejoicing and buying and, and also dealing with the world. And, and I think of those things here as, as he's going through that, and I think, what in the world is he saying? I had to go back and do some exegetical work to be sure I had this right and what he was saying. Well, what he is saying here is set up, and, and there are so many repetitions, I can't take time of the passage. But what he is saying here is, okay, you're living your life. Fine. Great. Enjoy your life. But don't miss what the priorities should be. 
the priority now, because time is short, and the world that you're living in, and maybe for, is passing away. So be sure that you are pleasing God and remaining undistracted by things when you should be focused on your heavenly goals. He's going to come back to this verse in a little bit. We'll come back to that. But the context of this whole statement is verse 28, which says, Yet those who marry will have burdens, and they will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So he, he's saying, look, there's going to be troubles in the world. Uh, there's, there's delights in the world, there are troubles in the world. So be sure that what you're doing, though, is pleasing God and keeping you undistracted. On page 112, paragraph 2, Calvin says this, But since this is truly slippery ground, that is, living in this world, walking through this world, since this is truly slippery ground with steep slopes in every direction, we should strive to set our feet where we can stand safely. So, uh, what are the slippery slopes? Well, on the one hand, the advice of some is that we should only use what is absolutely necessary, uh, as Calvin puts it, abstaining from everything that's not essential to life. And Calvin says that's too severe. If you want to just live on bread and water, just the basics to keep you alive, keep your pulse moving, keep your body moving, he says that is too severe. He quotes some illustrations. But then the evil that Calvin sees in this by saying, okay, you need to withdraw from the world. You don't need to enjoy things. Just use what you have to use and move on. No. He says the evil, this, they are bound, for they bind, are bound men's consciences more narrowly than the word of God binds them. A very dangerous thing to do. Anybody who wants to bind you to something that is not clearly taught in God's Word. That's a dangerous point. That is too extreme. Calvin would condemn that. He does so on page 113, paragraph 1. But on the other hand, I've said that, and some people will applaud that, but Calvin has another concern. Some people look for loopholes in order to excuse the excess of filling their own fleshly desires. Let me see on that second one there. So they're looking for loopholes. I, I read once of an atheist who was on his deathbed, and he had a Bible in his hand, flipping through the Bible. He says, what in the world are you doing? He says, looking for loopholes. All of us look for loopholes, look for in taxes or whatever. Where's the loophole? Well, people look for loopholes in order to excuse the fulfillment of their fleshly desires. Now we're talking here something more like self-indulgence. It's not just simply enjoying the things God had made. This is indulging, giving yourself, making that the priority of life, the reason for which you're living. Calvin says that this extreme also will take as fact what I won't concede, that freedom in using external things shouldn't be restrained in any measure and that it should be left to each one's conscience to make use of externalities as he sees fit. Now, Calvin says, I disagree with that. I will not concede that point that every person can do whatever they want and go to whatever extremes they want. 
Paul spoke to that issue in Romans 14 and 15. But since the Scripture gives us general rules, let me go back for a minute. Since the Scripture gives us general rules for the proper use of external things, page 114, we should certainly restrain ourselves according to the rules. So, Calvin says, I'm not giving you prohibitions. I'm, I'm trying to help you with protection. I want you to protect your heart. I want you to protect your Christian life. And so in the remaining sections of this chapter, Calvin provides some reminders and some guidelines for us how to keep um, safe in the slippery slopes. So, section two. Uh, this is in page 114. Here's uh, the God's gifts are to be used as they conform to God's purposes. So note the premise he begins with. We won't go wrong in the use of God's gifts as long as we let their use be governed by the author's purpose in creating and designing them for us. For truly, he created them for our good, not our ruin. Question. What did God say each day? As he created things at the end of the day, what did God say in the beginning? And God saw that it was good. That was not good. Right there. I, two people knew that word. We need to read Genesis. Okay, let's try it again. And God saw that it was good. Now, everything he made, every single day, everything that God made was good until the sixth day he created man and he saw that wasn't good. At least that's where my wife likes to stop the verse. But she doesn't. She doesn't. No, it wasn't good for him to be alone. So he needed someone by his side. More about that from the pastor a little bit later. Calvin illustrates and illuminates our minds here about common examples of God's good gifts he has made for us. So let's, let's look at what he talks about there. It's in paragraph, uh, page 115. First, food. Is it for our necessity? Do we really need food? All right. About five of you get to eat today. Food is necessary. Doesn't food also provide pleasure and enjoyment? I mean, do you, for me, you, you, maybe for you, you, you like to sit down, maybe you go to Mellow Mushroom for one of their uh, pizzas or something, or maybe you go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse to get a steak, and boy, that's just great for you. For me, a tomato sandwich in the summer, I'll take that any day, and it's a lot cheaper. Only with what? Dukes? Yeah, absolutely. I've got two jars in my refrigerator. So, got to have dukes. All right, point here is food is necessary. But food, God made it so it's enjoyable. More about that in a minute. But what about clothes? Are clothes necessary? I see everybody here is wearing them. Thank you. Okay. Yes, they're necessary. But they also can provide adornment, honor. You dress properly. I also, one of my other jobs is I, I work at a golf course, and if you don't come dressed a certain way, you will not be welcomed into the club. If you walk into the building, you're wearing a hat, and you don't take your hat off, you are not welcome in that club. There's just proper things to do. 
But, but clothes, it's a good thing that, that we are conscious and we want to wear clothes because clothes provide dignity. And I would point out that the first fashion designer was God himself. Man tried to put some clothes together, or Eve did, and Eve's leaves did not work well. So God made them clothes. God intends for clothes to be good, and they can be nice. They can be wonderful. And then he talks about herbs, trees, fruits. Why and with what qualities did God create these? Well, here's what Calvin says, page 115, paragraph 1 at the top. Appearance, appearance and charm of their smell in addition to various uses. Uh, Kathy and I were watching something from the uh, Criterion of Dauphiné, it's a bicycle race that's being run in France. It's a prelude to the Tour de France. And there were some vistas there of the green trees on the mountains, and there was, a, there was a flowing river. It wasn't a river. It was a waterfall, a cascade. And it was like, wow! And my eyes, my senses enjoyed that. There's beauty in the world. God has created beauty. And so the appearance, the charm, even the smell, the uh, fragrances that are let off by flowers, and their uses. There's good uses for all of those things. Now, along with these examples, Calvin quotes from Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You, God... You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for the man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Does that sound like there's a God out there that doesn't want you to enjoy things? No, he has put everything here for us to enjoy. Well, at least in, in Baptist circles, you've got to cover up verse 15. But, <laughs> but God said it. It's there for us to enjoy. It's the overindulgence that is the problem. Let me uh, read you something directly from Calvin. Look on page 116. I thought this was so beautiful. I wanted to quote the passage. Would the Lord have dressed the flowers with a beauty that runs freely to meet our eyes if it were wrong to be moved by such beauty? Would he have endowed them with so sweet a fragrance that flows freely into our nostrils if it were wrong to be moved by the pleasantness of such fragrance? Isn't the answer obvious? Has God not distinguished colors in such a way as to make some more pleasing than others? By the way, I'll pause in the quote. I love the color green. You know why I love the color green? Because my wife loves the color green. Because her eyes are green. More about that later. Again, I ask, is it the answer obvious? Isn't it clear that he made gold and silver and ivory and marble attractive, rendering um, it clear that he's made gold, silver, ivory, and marble attractive, well, I, I must have doubled that up, rendering them more precious than other metals and stones. In some, isn't it obvious that he has given us many praiseworthy things, even though they are not necessary? 
If God wiped out all the things on this earth that aren't necessary in a moment, you say, oh, bring on heaven. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't like this earth anymore. There's so many things here, but they reveal God. We're going to come to that in a moment, too. William Edgar writes this. Calvin's argument is that God gave us things to enjoy and not simply for utility. I want you to listen to something from one of his commentaries. I wish I could have done more of this today, reading from his commentaries, uh, that, that shed light on some of these things that maybe we say, is anything to be too strong? But Psalm 104, verse 30, 31, it's the end of the psalm we were looking at earlier. The inspired writer shows that for what purpose he has celebrated uh, in the preceding part of the psalm the power, wisdom, and goodness of God in his works, namely to stir up men's praise to him. It is no small honor that God for our sakes has so magnificently adorned the world in order that we may not only, not only, notice those words, be spectators of this beauteous theater, but also enjoy the multiplied abundance and variety of good things which are presented to us in it. Our gratitude in yielding to God the praise which is due is regarded by Him as a singular recompense. You see the beauty of the flowers. You say, oh, God, thank you for that. And God says, so I made it. Not that you would notice the gifts so much, but notice the giver of the gifts. Calvin also offers this observation in his uh, commentary on Genesis 29, 17 and 18, where Jacob sees that Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. Calvin writes of that. Therefore, he who shall be induced to choose a wife because of the elegance of her shape will not necessarily sin. Not a sin to enjoy the beauty of your wife. That's Calvin. Calvin comments on Genesis uh, 4, verses 20-22, about Lamech's sons, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. I won't go into all the quote, but what he is saying there is, God used these that were of the line of Cain and cursed and gave them good gifts. They learned animal husbandry. There was the fine arts that came out of that. There was, there was forging and metal works and so on. God gave us these things, and they are all good. Section 3, then. Though there is liberty, there should also be restraint. So we have liberty to enjoy. Enjoy all things. But Calvin is also looking for something else. Calvin presses for a sense of balance in chapters 3 through 6 now. So Calvin rejects, if you, if you look at page 117, paragraph 1 right at the top, Calvin rejects, the inhuman philosophy. Now, that's interesting. The inhuman philosophy. What does he mean by that? Listen on, and I think you'll get it. He rejects the inhuman philosophy that we should only use things out of absolute necessity, for it deprives us of the lawful enjoyment of divine kindness, and by its very nature reduces man to a block of wood robbed of all his senses. Like a rock like a piece of wood, if you can't enjoy the senses. Why? Why did God give us five senses? Do we need that? I mean, here we, are, we have touch, we have taste, we have smell, we have 
feel, hear, and we have sight. All those things. And God wants us to use all of them. These are his gifts to us. By the way, as a sidebar, when, when uh, my three daughters were growing up, and we came to birthdays or Christmas or whatever, and for my wife, I always thought in that five-fold way. I wanted to touch each one of their senses with a gift. They loved it. My bank account didn't, but they loved it. Because God's given us senses, He expects us to enjoy it. Otherwise, He makes us inhuman. The person who says, don't enjoy these things, He doesn't let us be who God made us. So, Calvin equally rejects, though, that we should allow fleshly desires to rush forward without restraint. Again, page 117, paragraph 1, right at the end. Here's his reasoning. I'm quoting him. Desire is bridled when we acknowledge that all things given to us are given in order that we might know their author. See, often we just want to indulge. But God wants us to see him in everything he has made. So, again, gifts point to the giver. And that's why his um, perspective here leads us, this particular perspective leads us to gratitude for God's gifts rather than a self-indulgence for me, me, me. No, it's God, God, God. I'll get to this verse in a moment. But taking it further, he condemns clothing styles. Um, he, he condemns those who, who then go out and buy fancy and expensive clothes. This is his wording. That point uh, to the point where they admire themselves and look down on others who don't dress as well as they do. I, I have seen this in, in my job work. Used to be a, I've said this before here, I think. As a pastor, you know, you always dress like a pastor. You're supposed to do that. You're supposed to wear. This is a man of the cloth. There's the cloth, by the way, if you ever wonder what it, No. And, and, you know, you always had to dress up and you'd go somewhere. Oh, there's the pastor. Now I walk in and I'm wearing a T-shirt and it's grungy. And I'm wearing my work pants and work shoes. And I got a hat on and I've got stuff all over me, grass and pollen and things like that where I've been working. I go in to get a drink and people just kind of go. Somebody else comes in who's doing the same kind of work. Says, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? We get along just fine. But you see, sometimes those things can separate us so easily. Um, let me see where I was there. Um, that's why uh, you know we, we need to have gratitude, not self-indulgence of the gifts of God. Calvin, our, uh, Calvin's argument is illustrated by using an image of overindulgence in drink. Chapter, uh, page 117, uh, chap, paragraph 2 in the middle there, that he, he says drinking is, is fine, but... Such a person cannot, if he drinks too much, he can't discern right from wrong. Wine is good, much wine isn't, okay? And I can tell you stories about that from places that I work. I won't tell you where, but it's, uh, it is amazing how people lose all sense of decency and self-respect when they have too much. Taking it further, he condemns the style of clothes that would open a door to sexual immorality. Page 118, paragraph 1 at the end. What we wear needs to also be careful that it's not immodest. 
He says, if it introduces any kind of sexually immoral thoughts, then it's wrong. We have lost that discipline in our world. We now look at all the performers, the American idols, literally, and we look at the people who stand up there and entertain, and less and less and less clothing and more and more and more to see of what we shouldn't be seeing. Calvin is very, um, sees a very real danger here in our becoming enchanted, therefore, with all these gifts and indulging them in the wrong ways, or that our senses have become so devoted to pleasure that we become buried in these things in life. William Edgar expresses it, thought this way. To put it in this modern terms, Calvin is concerned with priorities. So I guess when it comes to handling all this stuff, you know, what, what is my priority in indulging in this? What is my sense of perspective in doing this? Things are legitimate. They can be used. They can be enjoyed. But how far is too far? Romans 13. Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. By the way, uh, Calvin in, in this entire book here often talks about awaking from our slumber. He's borrowed that from Romans 13. Awake from sleep, for salvation is nearer for us than when you first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lust. If you indulge in things just to gratify your flesh and not to glorify God, there's where the problem comes. Number four, learn principles of moderation. Here, Calvin takes us back to what he had said in, in chapter four of this very book. And he says, there is no more reliable path for us than contempt for the present life and meditation on the heavenly immortality. Now, there is that word um, that might cause us to stumble a little bit. Contempt for this life. Keep in mind something. That when he uses the word contempt, he's using it to contrast. He's using it comparatively to caution us about very real dangers. He's going to temper this wording but he's telling us here that we need, comparatively speaking, you view earth with all of its joys and pleasures. View it with contempt compared to what God has in store for you. This is nothing compared to heaven. If you think this is good, just wait. And that's what Calvin is really reasoning here from. So, two principles explores protect, uh, this on heaven and earth. The first principle here is moderation, third bullet down. He references again 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let those who had wives live as though they had none. Let those who buy live as though they did not buy. And again, it's a matter of priorities and perspective in all of this. He, he writes in 
pages 119, 120, the one who seeks to hold on to the things of this world lightly puts to death the immoderate appetite of food and drink. He puts to death cowardice, ambition, pride, haughtiness, and dissatisfaction with respect to his table, his building, his clothes. He says, okay, don't choke the things of the world and hold on to them so tightly you can't let go. Corey Ten Boom which I think many of you may know Corey Tim Boom, who was uh, in the um, Nazi prison camps. She said she had to learn uh, not to hold on to things too tightly because it always hurt when God had to pry my fingers loose. Because God, if you're his child, he will pry your fingers loose if you hold on too tightly. Now, it doesn't say you can't hold on. Hold on to the wonders of the world. Hold on to the joys that God has given to you through His gifts. That's fine. But don't choke them to death because they will end up choking you to death. So our focus, our meditation should be, should center on the heavenly life and the improvement of our souls, he says on page 120. And he quotes Cato's true observation, he calls it, luxury produces much care and much carelessness for virtue. I, if I seek to live in luxury all my life, you've got to take care of all that stuff. The more stuff you get, the more you've got to take care of. But, he says, the problem is you're careless then in the care of your own virtue. Another old proverb he quoted, those who are much occupied with concern for the body generally neglect the soul. So, the conclusion this is page 120-121 at the bottom there, paragraph 2. Let them indulge themselves in very little. Rather, let them be perpetual intention, let the perpetual intention of the heart aim to eliminate their stockpiles, superfluous wealth, and curb extravagance, and to take caution not to turn things given to them for support into obstacles. And there's that last quote. I was not up with where I was. Okay, number five. Learn the joy of contentment. Here's the second principle. First principle is moderation that you talked about. As the second principle, those who have few possessions must learn to endure patiently their humble circumstances, not becoming agitated with excessive longing for things. Calvin will quote Paul here. And what the apostle had learned in his own life, Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. If you go back one verse, verse 11, he gives you the context. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. One of the great Puritans wrote a whole book. I think it was Jeremy Burroughs, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a rare jewel indeed to be content. And, and advertisements don't help you. They want to make you discontent. They want you to want more, better, newer, shinier. And who doesn't want that? I mean, I... I face the same temptations. I'm not standing up here, you know, saying I got it all figured out. I don't. 
So, uh, third rule. I think I have that one up here. Yeah, the third rule. That should regulate our use of earthly things. Here's what Calvin says. Scripture teaches that everything we own, everything appointed for our benefit, has been given to us by God's kindness, so that all that we own is like a deposit for which we must one day give an account. Let's often remind ourselves that we are stewards, not owners. I will give an account of my life, of my stewardship, of all he has entrusted to me, of all he has allowed me to be around. And then section six, the final section. Remember that every person has a calling in life. Notice page 123, paragraph two. Finally, it should be noted that the Lord bids each of us to consider in all life's actions our calling. Now, what does he mean by that? He, he means really our station in life. God places his people where he wants them and where they will be effective as salt and light in the world. Some people he places in high places. Other he places in lower places. I will tell you that from my childhood, I was in a low place. I don't know if I've shared much of my childhood about this, but uh, when, when my, my dad was, uh, came from a farm community, he and my mom got married very young. My mom almost died in childbirth. Uh, I barely survived because of a heart problem situation. But that's where I got the name Sparky. That's a whole other story, but that's not important. What is important is that from that moment on, it was, it was actually hand-to-mouth for many, many, many years. I can remember living as a kid. My mom couldn't have any more children. Um, and, and so we, we lived in a cinder block building for uh, two or three years. It was next to a trash dump. That was my background. My dad played music, and he would go out on his gigs, but he didn't get a regular job. My mom went out and got the job and worked. My dad stayed home, practiced his music, played checkers with his friends, uh, went to see his family, did other things like that. That's just the way the life was back then. Then, after a few years, um, and... Uh, we, we began to see some changes, and my dad trusted Christ. My mom uh, resurrendered her life back to Christ. I trusted Christ. We became a Christian home, and it was amazing how God changed things. Not that we ever became prosperous or rich, but things became stable and good from that standpoint. God put me in that humble beginning. I can appreciate those who have humble places, who don't have as much. I enjoy so much more. Mine girls got to enjoy so much more. Again, not rich, but more than surviving, enjoying life, doing things. All right. Now, here's the, here's the point. If this quote here, when you look back at this, He's telling us that, that um, you know, there, there is a, a calling, a station in life where God puts every one of us. And so we need to bloom wherever we're put. Whatever station you are. If God places you 
in a high position and God has blessed you in those ways, wonderful. If God has put you in a medium range or a lower range, God is still blessing you and meeting your needs. Be content with what you have. It's not that you can't go out searching for a job. You need to do that. Don't, don't just sit back and say, I'm going to wait for the job to come to me. But you'll need to try to, to, to move up the ladder, social ladder, so to speak, of this world and sell your soul doing it. Contentment is more valuable than a bank account. Okay, I'm preaching. I've got to stop that. <clears throat> he says this. <clears throat> Every individual's rank in life, therefore, is a kind of post assigned to him by God to keep him from rushing uh, about rashly for the whole of his life. We are restless people, Calvin says, and we're always searching for something. What, what's going to make me happy? And so we, we're, we're, we're constantly shifting and looking for that. Sometimes station may be humble, sometimes more elaborate, sometimes easy, sometimes difficult. But Job's example of a godly man who had everything in life and then lost everything is very convicting to me. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could we say that? Can I say that? And once again, we can appeal to Paul in Philippians chapter 4. There, how he learned contentment. At all times, we should be living by grace and leaning into his grace in order that we might be content, that we might be humble, that we might be patient. Allow God to bless you the way he wants to. So, live your life fully in whatever form it takes for God's glory. And I want you to see this as the last quote from in the book because it's some of the most powerful because it's not written to people who are simply rich or whatever. It's written to those of us who have come or are in a lower position in life. Every work performed in obedience to one's calling, no matter how ordinary and common is radiant, most valuable in the eyes of the Lord. See, it doesn't matter if you're rich and you do something good, or if you're poor and you do something good in the eyes of God. If you're faithful there, if you're faithful here, it's all equal in God's eyes. It praises Him. It glorifies Him. Now, we've come through that, and I want to conclude then, with, with just a quick review. Because this, these, these words of Calvin, I think, are powerful. I would encourage every Christian, as Levi has, if you're, if you're wanting to help somebody in their Christian life, have them read this. But you're going to have to explain some of it, obviously. But they ought to read this. The Christian life is... And, and this comes from the book that Levi's talked about, John Calvin for a New Reformation, Derek Thomas and John uh, Tweedale. Tweedale. Uh, that particular book is a magnificent book too. And he gives a summation. And here in six statements, I may make a comment here or there, are those. First, the Christian life is a life lived consciously in union with an imitation of Christ. So this is chapter one. 
this is what we need to realize, that, that uh, we are consciously in union with Christ. We are to live in imitation of Christ and follow Him. Second, it's a life set free from the idolatry of self. Self is the idol of our age. If you want to, you say, there's no idols in the world today. Look in the mirror. We become our own idols. We have American idols. And, and oh, it's just, we're crazed about how we idolize other people. This is the me generation. Uh, Carl Truman describes it this way, the notion that I am singularly important in the grand scheme of things and consequently anyone who attempts to relativize me, my abilities or my needs is blaspheming the godlike importance of my narcissism leads me to ascribe to myself. We're not idols. We are creatures. Made in the image of God. Blessed by God. Gifted by God. But free yourself from your, your idol. Third, a life committed to service to others. We get pulled in so many directions in life. Our jobs, our families, our church, our, our, our communities. We rush here and there. I want to read this passage from Mark chapter 6. Here's what Jesus did for his disciples after they had been busy, 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 busy. The apostles returned to Jesus, told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Why? For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. See, a person liked that. They said it was okay. Okay, and it is okay to take leisure time. By the way, you know what the word leisure uh, is in the original language? It is, it is good you, like eulogy is a good word. You and kairos for, for the word for time, good times. We, we need to get away. You need to get away. I can see it in your faces. So do we at times. Number four, it's a life that is realistic about this world and oriented toward heaven instead. Because we live with so many blessings and often with so much ease and pleasure, we become attached to this world. But this world is not a perfect place. It's suffering. We see it on every side. Death strikes every place. My heart is sickened by what we see with people going into schools and killing children with assault weapons. This is disgusting. And I'm a very, very conservative, I want you to notice, but I am disgusted by what I have to see every day and by what now has been brought into this world that, with fears. Calvin cautions us not to become intoxicated with all of our freedoms, with all of our liberties, with all of our, our, our good things. We're strangers in a strange land. We're pilgrims on a journey. We need to set our sights to heaven. That's what's going to count. Colossians 3, pastor preached it recently. Number five, it's a life in which moderation is the path to enjoyment. Here's what William Donnelly said. It is the lie of Satan from Eden onward that restraint is the enemy of fulfillment. Did you hear that? Get that? Our age has brought, bought the lie and believers that is more always, that it's always, that more is always better and excess is the path to guaranteed satisfaction. 
We don't like to restrain. But here's, here's Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The kingdom that you're building for yourself will pass away. The kingdom I'm building for myself will pass away. By the way, that, that, those words are followed by a story. The rich uh, fool. I will, I will, I will. He built bigger everything and then he was gone. And then finally, a life that is at the same time heroic and ordinary. Calvin's favorite metaphor for the Christian life is that of a soldier. Even as Paul wrote to Timothy, share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, we are, we are soldiers for Christ. One man says this is a necessary emphasis at a time when too many Christians have settled for private devotion, private peace, private affluence. Our influence in the culture is waning largely because we've left the battlefield. Christianity is too comfortable. And so we come back to that word from Calvin, page 126, for every work performed in obedience to one's calling no matter how ordinary and common, is radiant, most valuable in the eyes of the Lord. How do the eyes of the world look at you? More important, how do the eyes of the Lord view you? Father, thank you for this time that we've had to share this final chapter and go through this marvelous book by John Calvin. Thank you for Calvin as your servant, what he's left as a legacy to us to consider and to uh, feed upon and, and to learn from. May you help us all to live a Christian life as we have read about it here. And now bless us as we go into the next service. Bless our pastor as he preaches. Feed us on the word of God that we, we might nourish our souls. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bless you.